Um, I've labeled this chapter a king without a crown <laughs> in the life of David. Um, at this point, David, the subject of our study, um, probably pretty much knows that his destiny is to become the, the next king of Israel. Um, I'm not sure that he uh, is, is certain that he's going to arrive at that, <laughs> but if he survives this segment of his life, I think he knows that, uh, that that's where he's headed, that he's going to sit upon the throne with the crown on his head. Uh, Samuel has anointed him with oil. Um, didn't necessarily tell him what for, but when Samuel comes, the prophet, the, the most respected man in the nation, and dumps oil on your head, it's for more than um, keeping sheep in the field or, uh, or or holding a place in the army. You know, So there's a hint there. Jonathan, the son of Saul, has come to him at this time twice and said, Surely, David, you will be the king in place of my father, and I will be next to you. Um, the men in Gath, which were the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, when David was in Gath, they looked at David and they said, is not this the king of Israel? When as yet he, no one in Israel recognized David, yet even the enemies of God said that this is the king of Israel. Saul, who is the king, has at this point said to David, surely you will be the king. <laughs> you know, in my place after me. Um, and so that there, there's no small um, uh, buzz concerning this around David, and certainly in his heart and in his mind, he knows that this is uh, most likely where he's heading if he survives the season. Now, having said all of that, Knowing where you're going or what God's ultimate uh, destination for you in your life is uh, doesn't mean that you've already arrived there. Just because you know what he's doing doesn't mean you are uh, what he's doing. And knowing what God is doing in your life isn't going to get you there any faster either. Now, we know that every one of us has the destiny of becoming Christ-like, that when God put his Holy Spirit in our, our lives, when he saved us, he didn't save us so that he could leave us the way that we were or leave us the way that we are. Um, we're, we're destined to be Christ-like. That's what sanctification is. It's God's work in us to produce Christ in us. And we know that. And, and as we go through this life and we watch the changes that happen in us over the course of the weeks, months, and years of our, our Christian experience, that picture becomes clearer. We know what we're headed for. We look at Jesus and we see this is what God wants to do in our lives. And that's true. He's going to do that. But that doesn't mean that we've arrived. <laughs> because Just because we know what, what it's going to look like doesn't mean that we're there already. In John chapter 1, um, Jesus looked at Peter for the first time, and he, he said something amazing. He said, you are Simon, but you shall be Peter. And he looked at him at what, as what he was, and then he looked at what he was going to make him into. And he declared it to be so on the very first day that he laid eyes on him. Now, it would be a long process before Simon would become Peter. It didn't happen overnight. It took a long time uh, for, for the nature to change, for his destiny to unfold into what it would ultimately become. And the same thing's true for us. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, his, his craft, or his project in a sense. He sees what we are or were. He calls us. And immediately he knows what he's going to turn us into. 
And it's done in his mind on the first day that he calls us. But there's a process and time that takes place between the calling and the fulfillment of it or the realization of the destiny. It, it happens over time. Well, how does it happen? Mark chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there, but let me just read you um, a couple of verses. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Listen to a parable that Jesus gave. It says that he said that such is the kingdom of God. It's as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth brings forth fruit by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so Jesus gives this, this parable. He doesn't ever interpret it. But it's, it's a picture of you and I. You know, you and I are the citizens of the kingdom. You know, where the seed's been planted. And, and the, when the seed germinates, the first thing that happens is you, you see a green leaf. There's just the beginnings, you know. And then over time, as rain falls on it and night and day passes over it, it grows up and matures until now the ear where the corn will be birthed just begins to develop. And then as that develops in time, then you have the full corn in the ear and then it's ready for harvest. And what happens in our lives and what's happening in David in the chapter that's before us is that the, the, the blade has come up and, and the, the, the stalk has begun to shoot up. And if you ever drive past a, a cornfield um, in, you know, kind of like the middle of June or the early part of July, you know, you see these these little, um, inf not infant, but almost, they're, they're not even quite adolescent corn stalks. And, and so you have this main thing shooting up, and then you have like three branches that are kind of like coming off the shoot. And and what you have in the in that state of the the plant's existence is that you have this life, and and its destiny is kind of already foreshadowed. You know where the branches are going to be and what's going to be on those branches when it's full grown, but it hasn't happened yet. And the same thing happens to us. We grow up and, and we begin to walk with God, and all of a sudden these branches begin to appear in our life: gifts, desires. A, a direction, something that we're going to be, something that he's called us to do. It begins to unfold. And, and in his mind, and even in our foresight, we can begin to understand, God, this is what you're going to do with me. When I'm developed and matured, this is the plan that you've got for my life. For David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. That destiny was clear. He could see the branch. The corn was already beginning to, to develop within the stalk. The future of it was, was, was manifesting itself to David and also to those that were around David that could see what was happening in his life. But it hadn't developed fully yet. The, the, the completion was seen, but the practicals still had to be brought forth. And that can happen to us. We can see what he's doing and we can think, we can begin to think that we've arrived because we know where we're going. And we must be careful of that. And what we're going to see in David's life in this chapter is we're going to see an encounter, something's going to happen to David. He thinks that he's already further along than he really is. He's going to begin to put the pants on that don't fit him quite yet. He's going to put a crown on his head that falls down and chokes him around the neck, you know. 
But in the process of it, God's going to reveal something in David that he's going to need to have happen. And listen, it's something that every one of us, not one of us, can go without it. Something's going to happen to David in this chapter that every one of us must experience in order for us to be fruitful and lasting in our fruitfulness in the place that God is ultimately bringing us to. So let's see what happens to David in in this chapter, chapter 25. We're starting in verse 2 because we did verse 1 at the end of our last study. It says that there was a man in Maon, and Maon is the, um, the desert, in the southern portions of Judah, where David is uh, a fugitive. It's uh, the wilderness there where he's dwelling in strongholds with his men. And it says that there was a man who lived in that region whose possessions were in Carmel. And Carmel was uh, in that same region. It was just a little bit off to the west of Maon, but it was in the same general vicinity. And it says that the man was very great. That is, he was a man of reputation. He was well known by the uh, the people that lived in Judah in that area. He was also very rich, is the implication. He was great in possessions. And it says that he had 3,000 sheep, and that's no small farm. Um, even in, in, in the modern time, if you were to see a farm that had 300 sheep, that's or 3,000 sheep and, and 1,000 goats, that's quite uh, some, some substance. And it says that he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And so it's the time of harvest is the implication. Uh, the, 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 the season of sowing and, um, and then of, of cultivating is past, and now it's the time of harvest, uh, income season, so to speak, the time of riches. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding, and the idea behind good understanding is that she was uh, a discerning woman, she was wise, she was discretionate, she was perceptive, and so she was uh, not a woman who kind of lived moment to moment, but she was one that, that kind of understood her surroundings, and she had a spirit of wisdom about her. And not only was she of good understanding, but it also says that she was of a beautiful countenance, meaning that she was uh, quite attractive uh, uh, through and through. She was a, a real uh, knockout. And King James, you know, you put that in the, the newer translation is kind of the idea. Or she was hot, you know, if you really want to get liberal with your translation. But it says, but the man now, and how many times have we seen this? I actually live this every day. The man was churlish and evil in his doings, meaning that he was no match uh, for the catch (laughs) that he had uh, obtained. You know, he was a jerk, in other words, is the way this says it. And uh, he was arrogant. He was uh, forthright. He was brash with his words. He had no tact. Um, There's nothing in this man that represents a good understanding, um, but he was just a jerk. And so he was evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. And so basically what he's doing is he's riding the reputation of his ancestors. He is what we would call a bad branch in a good tree. You know, Caleb, of course, any of his descendants would be well-esteemed in Israel. And this man, kind of uh, raised in the silver spoon, um, carries the the arrogance of the whole thing. And so here's the match. And now it says in verse 4, there's the background, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And so David sent out ten young men 
And David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. So in other words, you know, tell him David has sent you. And so David kind of carrying um, what he perceives to be a good reputation in his own mind uh, and, and thinks that that's going to get him somewhere here. And so David sent out the, the uh, I'm sorry, verse 6, And this you shall say to him that lives in prosperity, Peace be both to thee, and peace be to thine house, and peace be unto all that you have. And so a greeting of, uh, of peacefulness, that, that, the, that Nabal is certain that these men are coming with good intentions. He says, And now I have heard that you have shearers. Now thy shepherds which were with us, we hurt them not, neither was there anything missing unto them all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask thy young men, and they will show you, wherefore let the young men find favor in your eyes, for we come in a good day, a prosperous day, a, a convenient day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever comes to thy hand unto thy servants and unto thy son uh, David. And so David sends these ten young men. He brings uh, a blessing and his intentions of peace. And then what he does essentially with, with Nabal here is that he uh, declares his deed of being a protection and a covering to Nabal's shepherds while David, were, David and his men were also in that region. So basically, while David and his men were living in this wilderness, they were protecting and, and helping the shepherds of Nabal's flocks that were there uh, in the whole thing. And so now what David does is he um, thinks in himself that because he did this and helped Nabal, that now Nabal's going to kind of repay the favor by giving some provisions to David and his men that are there in the wilderness. And so he asks for it, and he doesn't demand it, nor does he uh, set a price tag on what, what he had done. He just simply says, listen, ask your shepherds you know, what we did for them while we were out in the field, and then just give us something that's propensate you know, with, with what we provided for you uh, while you were there in the wilderness. Whatever comes into your hand uh, to give. Now, notice Nabal's response in verse 9. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and then ceased. <coughs> and Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? And so Nabal kind of comes back. He hears this man, you know, the, 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 these young men that come in David's name. And he looks at them and he says, well, who in the heck is this David? And why does he think that he's entitled uh, to anything that, that is mine? You know, I didn't, I'm not in contract with him. I didn't hire his men. I didn't ask for their covering or for their help. And I don't really, quite frankly, care uh, what he did for me uh, or for my men out in the field. I owe him nothing, and I'm going to give him nothing, and he should expect absolutely nothing from me in return for, for this thing. 
and, and, and basically uh, just refuses him and gives disrespect to his person, to his name, to his background. He cares not about uh, David's reputation nor David's destiny. He doesn't he, – who does he think he is? He has no crown on his head, and I have no obligation to him at all whatsoever. I'm completely unwilling to supply anything that David uh, is, ask, is asking for. Now, let's just pause right here in, in, in our spiritual mind and remember something, that God is sovereign in every life over everything that happens in that life. And I believe no less is that true than here in the response that Nabal brings to David. I believe that this is intentional by God, that God moved Nabal Though it was his nature to respond to David in this way, uh, because this is a test in this whole thing. And I want you to see David's response now to Nabal's refusal. Notice with me in verse 12. It says, so David's young men turned their way and they went again and they came and told him all those sayings. And David said unto his men, gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. So David catches this response back from Nabal. And David's response to Nabal's response is, I'm going to kill him. This man is a dead man. He tells 400 of his men, get your swords. He tells 200 of men, you guys guard the stuff. And he arms himself as if he's going to war. He makes, he makes a plan here. And David has fire in his eyes uh, because of this whole thing. Now, why in the world did David react this way? I mean, in his mind, David's justification of it is that he had supplied a service unto Nabal and he had made the assumption that he would be rewarded according to what he had done for him. But he's forgetting the fact that there's been no agreement made. There was no, no, no contract. And Nabal owes him nothing. And in a legal and practical sense, this shouldn't bother David. He should look at this thing and say, well, you know, fool, you know, the foolish be on me. I, I, I did something and, and I, I made an assumption and I shouldn't have done that. Another reason is that David is gaining strength at this time. He has delivered the men of Keilah, which is a, a, a town that, that, that kind of um, uh, has, has ties with Maon. It's in that same region. Um, his reputation is growing. David is growing in strength. And he feels in his mind that he should be respected by the people in that region because of his presence there. And he's not respected. He's disrespected. But again, he doesn't have a crown on his head, and he technically is a fugitive, so this shouldn't bother him that Nabal refuses. Nevertheless, it does. And isn't it interesting that when David is disrespected and refused in this way, that he responds with pride, with anger, and with force? And just think about how foolish that is. This isn't the Philistines. This isn't the enemies of God. This isn't... You know, this isn't even an enemy of David necessarily, and yet David is treating these people that are God's people as though they're the enemies of God in this thing. And you can begin to see the foolishness of David's reaction in this. Now, what does this reveal about David, the fact that he's responding this way? It is revealing, first of all, that his intentions 
and that's what matters to God, not our actions, but our intentions, that his intentions in taking care of the shepherds of Nabal were not peace. Remember what he said? Peace be unto you. Peace be unto your house. Peace be unto your possessions. That wasn't David's intention. David's intention wasn't peace. David's intention was provisions. David here is playing the politician, not the servant. He's doing something, scratching a back, hoping to have his back scratched in return. And what's being revealed in David now is an inconsistency in his character. There's something that's amiss in what he is. And it shows that he is not yet a king after God's own heart. He will be. That's what God's making him into, but he has not quite arrived yet, and it's shown by his reactions. Listen, men, you guys know this by now, I hope. Our reactions to the things that happen to us in our lives, our reactions to the way people treat us, to the things that are done to us, no matter who that reaction comes from, maybe someone that we feel entitled to have respect from, or maybe someone who should know better in the way that they speak to us, and they do something or they say something to us, and we react to it. What our reactions reveal is what's really going on inside our heart. They reveal who we are on the inside, not necessarily what we put forth to be on the outside. When we react with anger, with pride, with force, when bitterness arises within us, when those things come out, what it reveals is that we are not the Christ-like men that we're supposed to be. If you want to know how much of a servant leader you are in your home or in your business or in your life, all you have to do is monitor how you respond when you're treated like a servant. When you're treated like one, that reveals how far along you are. And David here fails this test miserably. He thinks he's a king, he's treated like a servant, and he responds accordingly. Nabal looks at David and he basically calls him a fugitive. He says, there be many, many servants, that's what he calls him, many servants that break away from their masters these days. He goes, all you are is someone who is discontent at your job. You left your job. You're starting a small company thinking you can compete with the big dogs and you're not worthy of my business. And it grates on David's pride. Do you know what this is in David right now? This is Saul. This is Saul-like mentality coming out of David. And you know what? It answers the question that David probably has within his heart. Why am I still out here in this wilderness? Why, God, are you allowing me to still run when I have shown myself to be so faithful thus far? And you know what God's answer is? Because, David, there's still work to do in your life. And the reason you're still out here in this wilderness, the reason why you haven't come into your destiny yet and what I've called you to do and to be is because there's still something that needs to be done in your heart so that your kingdom doesn't end up just like Saul's kingdom does sometime off there in the future. At this point, David, this young king without a crown, has already forgotten where he's come from. Where did he come from? He was the runt son of a man in Bethlehem, Judah, the least in his father's house, not even invited to the feast. 
And in such a short period of time, this little rooster has become a king in his own eye and in his own mind, and he's become bigger than he actually is. It's important for you and I that we never for one day in our life think of ourselves one inch or one ounce bigger than what we are. And you know what we are? We are what we were when we were called. That's what we are. Because anything else that we ever become is God's work and presence in our lives, not ourselves. And when we get bigger than lost souls, we become a liability and not an asset to God. And David has to see that here within his heart. And so notice now, David, uh, fire in his eyes, a sword girded on his side, 399 men at his side, heads for Nabal's house. And now watch what happens in verse 14. It says, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed on them. But, he says, the men were very good unto us. Now notice, God takes note. The goodness that we do, the things that we do, God sees those things. He looks out for us. And we were not hurt, neither missed we anything as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. They were a wall unto us, protection, both by night and by day, all the while that we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial. Such a, you know, I, I mean, this is really going out on a limb. You tell the boss's wife <laughs> that the boss, he is such a son of the devil that a man cannot speak unto him. Now, on a side note here, may what these young men said about David's men, may this be said about every one of us by those that don't yet know the Lord. The people that we work alongside, the people that we live nearby, the people that interact with us on a daily basis that aren't our Christian brothers and sisters, may they be able to say about us what these men say about David's men is that these men were very good to us. They were a wall, a protection for us. They were a covering with us. They were conversant with us. They, they lived, they, they were one of us. They didn't act like they were over us or better than us or holier than us because they're saved and we're lost or they're David's men and we're not. Or because our master is the devil and his master happens to be the Lord, you know. But they were good to us and they were with us in the field. May the people that we live alongside that do not yet know the Lord look at you and me and this be that be th their opinion of us. That they look and say, you know what, they're a Christian. And I don't understand why they believe what they believe. I don't understand why they, they live the way that they live. But I can say that they're good, they've been good to us. May we be like David's men. We are David's men, the son of David, the greater than David. Um, so, the, so verse 18, so Abigail now, this wise woman, made haste. And she took 200 loaves and 200, or two bottles of wine. <laughs> I hope she doesn't take 200 bottles of wine. <laughs> and five sheep, ready dressed, and five measures of parched corn, and 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. Those are fig newtons. First mention of fig newtons in the Bible. <laughs> and laid them... Uh, on donkeys, and she said unto her servants, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. 
And it was so, as she rode on the ass, that she came down by the covert of the hill. And behold, David and his men came down against her, and she met them. Now, David had said, and this was David's mindset in, in this whole thing, Surely in vain have I kept all this fellow. Now, that's not true, and, and yet it is true. David, it wasn't in vain that you did it. The Bible says, know, know this, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Anything that we do is not in vain in the Lord. But what was in vain was David's motive. David's motive was that he wasn't doing this as unto the Lord. He was doing this for his own provision, for his own benefit. And in that sense, it was in vain because he didn't get what he was hoping to get out of it. He says, surely in vain I have kept all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him. And he has repaid me evil for good. So, and more also, do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertains to him by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. Meaning every male. Anyone who, who, who is a male is going to be dead in his household by the morning light because of the way. You, you almost look at this thing and you say, what in the world has gotten into you? It's not what's gotten into him. It's what's coming out of him. It was already there. And God only saw it. God raised up the circumstance in order to bring forth the reaction to expose what's in the man. What a change it'll be by the end. So when Abigail, verse 23, David saw David, she hasted and she lighted off the ass and she fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. So she says, don't, don't take it out on Nabal. Let it be upon me. It's my sin. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Now, Nabal happens to mean fool. And so she just says, listen, his name isn't, isn't a far cry from what he is. <laughs> he is exactly what his name sets him forth to be. There is a perfect congruency in Nabal's name and Nabal's nature. <laughs> and so she says, listen, you're, you're dealing with a fool here. Understand that. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth. Now, this is the first mention of God in this entire episode, in, in, in the entirety uh, of this chapter, this segment of David's life. And it's almost like an arrow in the heart of David, a reminder of things that he needed this wise woman to bring to him uh, concerning his reaction here. He says, as the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, and this should echo in the mind of David or in the heart of David, like, David, you're still alive. Who's kept you alive this long? <laughs> is it the provisions of foolish men or is it the hand of the Lord who lives? As thy soul lives, seeing the Lord has withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself. Listen, my presence here, David, has stopped you from shedding the blood of Nabal and his men and from avenging yourself. Now, isn't it amazing how much scripture 
this wise woman is bringing to David just in, in bringing him a sentence. What did Jesus say? He said, avenge not yourselves, right? That's the way of God from the beginning. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Jesus said, repay not evil with evil, but rather, if someone curses you, bless them. If someone hates you, repay it with love. That's the way of God. That's Christ-likeness. And Abigail says, whoa, whoa, David, remember God. Remember your life. Remember that you're, you're alive right now. And, and, and she says, don't shed blood. Don't avenge yourself with your own hand. Now let your enemies and they that seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal, fools. And now this blessing which thine handmaid has brought unto my Lord, let it be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, here's her, her petition, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil has not been found in thee all thy days. Yet a man, she's speaking of Saul here, is risen to pursue you and to seek your soul. But the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies. Them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. David, your hand is in the life of, uh, or your, your life is in the hand of the Lord. And, and he's got a plan for you. You've been called to fight his battles and you're going to rule over his people. He's now being told by Abigail what his destiny is going to be. And she's saying, listen, as God has preserved you thus far, he's going to continue to preserve you and all of your enemies are going to be slung out of God's hand as though they were in the middle of a sling. You're acting extremely foolishly here, David, in this, in this endeavor to avenge yourself. And it shall come to pass, verse 30, when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and have appointed you ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that you have shed blood causeless or that my Lord has avenged himself." David, someday, Abigail says, you're going to sit on the throne of Israel and you're going to wear the crown that you don't have yet. And it's going to be on your head. And every day of your reign sitting upon the throne, it's going to be a, a thorn in your conscience that you killed a man and you killed the males of his household that was a citizen of Israel, someone who was entrusted unto your care because he didn't give you food that wasn't yours and that you had absolutely no right to ask for or to claim. And you're going to remember that every day of your sitting upon the throne if you go forward and you do this thing. And it is going to be a, a sting in your conscience that you avenged yourself and you didn't leave it in the hand of the Lord to do it. David, be careful what you do is the counsel of this wise woman. Now, the amazing thing in all this is that, you know, I mean, I think if I was Abigail, I'd have been like, hmm, maybe I'll let him kill Nabal and then I'll stop him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, save the servants, you know, <laughs> this would have been in her best interest in a sense, in, in the flesh at least for David to go through with it. She, she could have said, yeah, now Nabal, see what he's got coming to him. Someone needs to put him in his place and he's now messed with the wrong guy, you know, and the whole thing. But she's looking to the things of God 
not to the things that are best for her. And so David said to Abigail, he wakes up. It's as though he's shaken out of this stupor of pride that he's fallen into here. He wakes up and he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, which sent you to meet, uh, sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your advice and blessed be thou. Blessed be the Lord, blessed be your advice and blessed be you, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, which has kept me back from hurting you, except you had hasted and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. So David received of her hand that which she had brought him, and said unto her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have hearkened to your voice, and I have accepted your person. David says, Boy, did I need that. I needed the soft entreaty of a wise woman to come up to me and just set me straight on what I was thinking, the direction I was going, and give me some much-needed perspective concerning the past, present, and future. That's what this woman did. Guys, if God's given you a Christian wife, listen to her. Listen to what she says. Abraham, a great man, God said, listen to your wife, Abraham. Listen to what she has to say. It's interesting that when you read about wisdom in the Bible... Wisdom is always personified in the feminine gender. God speaks to us through our wives. Sometimes we can get set in a track, a course of thought. We go in a direction. And our wives, they come to us and they try to give us some perspective about the past, present, and future. They try to bring God into the equation. And we have the choice whether or not we're going to heed and listen or whether or not we're going to stubbornly persist in a way that will be a detriment to us. If God sends your wife to reprove something or to stand or oppose or whatever, don't plow over. Listen. Blessed be the Lord, say. Blessed be your advice and blessed be you, which has kept me this day. From shedding innocent blood. God is faithful uh, to, 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 to raise up those warnings in us. And thankfully, uh, David heeds the warning of Abigail. So watch what happens. Verse 36. So Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal that his wife had told him all these things that his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal and he died. Let the Lord fight your battles, guys. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. 
For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head, and David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spoke unto her, saying, David sent us unto thee to take thee to him to wife. David's like, yes, single lady, single guy. And she arose and she bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers that went after her. And she went after the messengers of David and she became his wife. And we'll uh, stop there for today because, uh, you know, the last two verses kind of expose a new uh, thing that God's got to deal with in David's uh, life and the whole thing. But as we close, just a couple of thoughts um, to wrap up uh, what's going on here in David's life and how it applies to you and I and our, our walk with the Lord. At this point, David's got to be thinking, why, why am I still here? Why am I still in, in this wilderness? Why am I still suffering these things? You know, why is Saul still chasing after my life? God, why so long uh, in, in all of these things? Is it the pain and the, um, the difficulty and the uncertainty of it all? Uh, Lord, why? How long is the whole thing? And the fact of the matter concerning David here is that David certainly is called. He, he is going to be the king. And he's chosen. God's going to do it. It's going to come to pass. He's going to succeed. But the fact is that David's not there yet. He's not ready yet. He, he, he's being made into a king, but he's not a king at this, at this point. And the biggest thing that's still yet lacking in David, it's really just one thing at this point that's lacking in David, is that what he is, is he is still unbroken. He's got a lot of good things going for him, but he has not yet been broken by the Lord. At the moment we get saved... You and I, when we give our lives to him, we at that moment, we have all of him. He is fully committed to us. We have all of God, all of his promises, all of his blessings, all of his work, everything that he has is ours. The great and precious promises, he holds nothing back from us. But at the moment we get saved, he does not yet have all of us. That's a process because he doesn't take it. He doesn't usurp it. He woos us. He wins us. He does it by surrender. He does it by, by uh, uncovering what's inside and then waiting for us to give it to him and say, Lord, you can have this part of my life. Now, and then once we give it to him, then he takes it and he sanctifies it and he, and he makes it whole. And the breaking of a man is when God gets the whole thing. When a, when a man comes to the point where he realizes, God, I, I, am, I don't have what it takes in myself to govern my own life. If you leave me to myself in just one area or for just one decision, God, I'm going to ruin and wreck the entire thing. And as long as we hold on to even one little rein, well, God, you can have nine things in my life, but I'm going to hold on to this one thing. God, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. The breaking hasn't been complete yet. You don't know who you are. You don't see what's inside in the whole thing. Before Simon could become Peter, there had to be a breaking in his life. Lord, I will die with you, Peter said. Though all men deny you, I'm not going to deny you. 
I'm going to be the faithful one that's with you all the way to the end. I'll cut off the 14-year-old boy's ear. <laughs> that try, Lord, you don't have to worry as long as I'm here. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, come here. He said, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Do you know what sifting is? It's breaking. It's taking a, a grain of wheat that still has the chaff on it, the useless outer covering, and breaking it or stomping it or crushing it so that that flaky chaff falls off. Satan has desired to crush you like wheat. But, Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before morning. So confident, so sure, so aware of yourself, so thinking that you're ready now. You're ready to be the Pope. You're going to be the, the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. Jesus already said to Peter, that's what you're going to do. Peter was going to do it, but he wasn't broken yet. He needed to break. He needed to see what he was on the inside. All was not yet surrendered to the Lord. You're going to be broken, Peter, but I prayed for you. Your faith isn't going to fail. You're not going to totally fall away. But it's going to be bad. It's going to be ugly. It's going to hurt. The failure that you're going to go through, Peter, is going to be so great that you're going to think that you're lost forever. But I've prayed for you. And your faith isn't going to fail. I'm going to come through and I'm going to win. But you need to see what you are. You need to be broken. Before the Apostle Paul could become the Apostle Paul, when he was still Saul, he needed to be broken. He went into Jerusalem after being saved for only a couple of weeks. And he was armed with all the knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures now completed with the gospel and filled with the Holy Spirit, and he thought he was ready to be the greatest of the apostles. And he went into Jerusalem, and he argued, and he disputed, and he made his case that Jesus is the very Christ. And he thought, how is it that they cannot see what I see? And the churches that were in Jerusalem that had been at rest were so stirred up with anxiety over the presence of Paul that the apostles had to gather Paul, and they had to bring him before him. And you know what they had to say to him? Saul, please go home. Please leave. Get out of Jerusalem. There's a peace here. There's a rest. God is doing something. You're confusing it. Get out. And they kicked him out of Jerusalem. And he went for the next seven years and lived in isolation while he learned what he was. He had to be broken. To the point where there was nothing left of him at the end that he was a tent maker in Tarsus thinking that that would be my destiny in my life. He had to come to nothing and realize that he was nothing. Same thing that happened to Peter. That's what happened to Paul. Before Moses could be sent back to Israel, he's 40 years old. He thinks he's got it all. It wasn't until he was 80 and he was a stutterer who knew nothing that God said, now you're ready. You're broken. Before Elijah could become the man that God wanted him to be, he needed to be up in a mountainside saying to God, God, I am not better than my fathers. I'm nothing. Send by the hand whom you'll send. Lord, take me home. I don't even want to do this anymore. God said, okay, now let's get some things done. I want you to go anoint Elisha. You got 10 more years of ministry in you. Now you can reflect me. 
a breaking has to happen in the life. If it doesn't, if it doesn't, then we're useless to God. We're a liability. We're a Saul waiting to happen. Even if we're nine-tenths good, if one-tenth isn't surrendered, it's just an accident waiting to happen. That's what our life is. We must be broken. David is going to come to a point soon, he's almost there, where he's going to give up completely on God. He's going to do what Peter did. He's going to say, you know what, God, this stinks. I ain't doing this anymore. And he's going to go to Ziklag, and he's going to join the enemy army, and he's going to fight against Israel. And he's going to come to a point where he's so backslidden and so crushed into the dirt that he throws away his own hope of his calling. He's going to realize there that he's nothing. And you know what? The breaking is going to work. You know why? You know how we know? Because many, many, many years from now, when David wears the crown and he's the king in Jerusalem, and his son Absalom rises up against him to try to take the throne from him. And David flees for his life, leaves Jerusalem, because he'll die if he doesn't. And he's walking in exile. Shimei, this nothing peon of a man, cries out from across the valley and he curses David in the name of the Lord. And he walks all along and just curses David the whole time, just hurls these curses at him. And David's men look at David and they say, David, you're going to take that? I mean, let us just go over. We won't have to hit him twice. It'll just be quick and easy and we'll just get rid of this thing. You know what David says? He doesn't say, yeah, guys, can't he see that I still have the crown? Doesn't he remember that Saul was still king even when I was a few. Doesn't this guy know that you respect? I mean, doesn't, yeah, go teach that guy. David says, no. He says, maybe God put it in his heart to curse. Leave him alone. And then even after David is restored and they say, should we get rid of this guy? He says, no. Let him be. See, it worked. David became a servant leader. He wasn't yet at this point. Every one of us need to be broken. Every one of us need to be broken. I thought I was broken way before I was. I thought I was so much further along. I went through a year and a half in a tunnel, a dungeon. And it was such a miserable time in my life and in my faith. Everything was so dark. Everything was so silent that I thought I was done. I thought I'd cursed God in my heart. I thought I was apostate. I thought he's finished with me. In my heart, I failed him. I thought, I don't even want to do this anymore. God, I give up. I wish I never gave my life to you. These were the thoughts that were going on in my mind in the whole thing. At one point, I thought, God, I'm going to do such great things for you. And then God let me come into a place where I saw that what's in my heart is really that I'm just a self-absorbed, self-consumed, sinful man. And God didn't leave me in that and say, see what you are. You see, I, I, I want nothing to do with you. You deserve nothing. But I had to see it in my own life. I had to look straight into the mirror and see the ugliness of what was on the inside. And every one of us must come to that place. And you can't do it through a textbook. You can't do it because you sat in a study like this and realized, oh, you did it to David. God, yeah, I, 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 rec- I know it. I, you don't have to, I don't have to see it. I know it. I believe it. And it doesn't work that way. 
He's got to bring us to the place where we see every little piece of it. Because it's there that we fall upon grace. When we see what that is, what's on the inside, that's when we come to the point where we can't be lifted up in pride. How can you get lifted up in pride when you know what you are, when you've seen it, when you've smelled it, when the stench of the smell of the flesh is burned into the senses of your life? It's impossible to become lifted up in pride. Everything, God, that you do is by grace. Everything that you give is by grace. Everything that I am is by grace. There's nothing else other than grace. When Nabal's come into your life, that grate against your pride, or that cause you to rise up, or that cause you to react, God is bringing that Nabal or that circumstance or that reaction to the surface so that we can see what's inside of us. And we can resist it or we can embrace it. We can say, eh, that guy deserves it. Doesn't he know what I did for him? And we can hold on to our, hold on to our dignity. Or we can say, God, forgive me. Look at what's inside. I'm a wretched sinner. Lord, forgive me. Look at the anger that's still in me. Look at the pride. Lord, look at, look at the self-respect, the self-exaltation. Look how quickly I forget that I'm just a man. I'm nothing. And yet I think I'm so great. Lord, forgive me. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Beautiful picture there. If 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 you have to humble yourselves under the hand of God, where is the hand of God? If God is lifting you up, where is God's hand? Under. So let me ask you a question. Where would you rather be? <laughs> you want God's hand pushing you down? Or do you want God's hand lifting you up? The breaking is so worth it for all the pain and the time that it costs. But God is faithful. He's good. Father, we just thank you this morning, Lord, for, uh, for, for what we see you doing in David through all these various things. And we ask, Lord, that it wouldn't be just something that we learn in our head, but something that you do for us in our heart. Thank you, Lord, for your, your ways. Your ways are so precious to us. Help us, Lord, to um, surrender to them and not resist, that we might bear good fruit that remains. Oh, Lord, each one of us here is a stalk of corn. We see, Lord, little branches coming out. We recognize gifts and plans that may be unfolding. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would realize every one of those things, that we would wear the crowns that you have for us, that we would occupy the positions and places that you've seen already for us to have. Oh, God, that we would be all that we're destined to be, that none of us would come short of it because of pride, resistance, stubbornness. Help us to die, oh, Lord. Help us to be broken. Let your purpose be accomplished in us. Thank you, Lord, for your ways. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.